Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Carmageddon, a new book by Daniel Knowles, a polemic about the damage caused by motorised vehicles and our addiction to them. Daniel says that car manufacturers are really not much different to the oil industry or big tobacco. He explores the racialized road building that helps segregate the United States, discusses how UK cities were rebuilt after the Second World War in ways that militated against pedestrians, and looks at the urban areas pointing the way to a car-free future. Top gear, it is not. We'll be talking to Daniel in a moment. But first, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. Find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Daniel Knowles. Daniel has a global perspective on road travel. He grew up in Birmingham, which is where I'm recording this episode of the podcast. He works now in Chicago as the Midwest correspondent for The Economist and has lived in Kenya, Mumbai, London and Washington, D.C. Dan, what strikes me about your book, Carmageddon, is that all of those cities historically anyway, have shared the same aspiration, which is to make as much room for cars as is humanly possible. This book kind of really began, I think, when I was living in Kenya, because that's a city that's still basically sort of hammering bypasses, uh, motorways, you know, right across it and spreading out in an attempt to make it possible to get around by cars in a way that, you know, London and Chicago and DC and Birmingham, most perhaps notably in the UK, really did in the 1950s and 1960s and left us with this sort of legacy of places that aren't very difficult to get around any other way by car. So the book is partly about how, how that happened, but it's also about how it's still happening in large parts of the world. It's fascinating to contemplate how in the developing world, in countries like Kenya, very few people can own a car. But even then, the aspiration of car ownership and provision for car ownership is built into the way of doing things. Yeah. So the reason why places like Nairobi or Mumbai are building out for cars and the reason why we built out for cars is that cars promise this sort of impossible dream. If you're the first person to get a car, it's brilliant because it's this wonderfully convenient, comfortable device that gets you from A to B without having to stop, without having to share space with anybody else. So when cars first become available or when you know enough people begin to get rich enough to buy them, like they, they are in places like Nairobi now, initially it seems very exciting. And so there's this huge pressure to try and make it so that more people can have them. But actually the problem is that not everybody can kind of benefit from that. When everybody has a car, it's no longer the case that it's this convenient, wonderful individual way of getting around. Suddenly you're stuck in a traffic jam. Or if you're not stuck in a traffic jam, everything is so much further apart that suddenly you're driving, you know, three or four miles for the sorts of journey that if we didn't kind of build our cities around cars, it might be half a mile or less. It might be, you know, on your doorstep. To try and make it possible for everybody or for a very large majority of people to have cars, we've allowed our cities to basically spread out to this enormous level that it's very difficult not to have a car now. And 
it's no better kind of having a car than it is living in somewhere where you don't need one. It's actually worse in many ways. So the sort of promise of freedom that a car that cars offer, it's illusory. It's kind of impossible to have it. It's only possible if only a few people have them. And the answer to that congestion that you described, and again, this is happening in the developing world, but it's also happened in the West over many decades, is to build more roads, isn't it? It's to increase road capacity. And it's a zero-sum game because you build more roads, you generate more traffic. You also generate more housing, more industry that goes alongside it. So the freedom that cars promise is, as you say, at the very best short-lived and ultimately an illusion. Right. And that's exactly it. And, you know, I think building roads is not always a bad thing. You know, building more housing and more industry is not always a bad thing. We need those things. But what we've done is expand our roads so much that that rather than just, you know, kind of having more housing and more space, we, everything's spread out, everything's further apart. And as you expand the road capacity, people just end up driving further and you end up with just as much traffic as you had before. And people are, are driving these enormous distances, you know, and, and you can see this in how far people commute in, in the UK. But I mean, here in the US, the average person is driving something like 40 miles each way a day. It's wild. You talk about Houston in Texas, which seems to me to be the car craziest city in the world or one that is most wedded to the car that you've encountered. It's really, it's definitely up there. It's a wild place if you go to Houston. You know, it's almost impossible to get around any other way, even, you know, within a neighborhood because the roads are so big. There's this motorway there. It's called the Katy Freeway, which at its widest point is 26 lanes wide, you know, something like 13 in each direction. So as you're sort of coming onto it, it will tell you, you know, next exit, next exit, uh, and you'll have a mile in which to get across these 13 lanes of traffic um <laughs> all going at kind of 40 miles an hour or sometimes slower because it's sometimes very heavy traffic it's completely terrifying and every kind of business has this phenomenal amount of parking the city is so spread out that you know it's it's like 50 or 60 miles sort of across it and you practically live in your car if you if you live in in houston in fact really any city in texas is like that and it's extraordinarily damaging to the environment. The pollution that's emitted, you know, locally is also kind of extremely bad. And it floods. It's got all these other problems. You know, Houston's a really unlivable place. And yet that's kind of what's growing. It's one of the fastest growing cities in America because it keeps spreading out along these roads. And it's become so difficult to build upwards in cities, you know, that people really would prefer to live in, like New York City or or DC or San Francisco. You know, those cities are sort of struggling to expand because they don't build new housing. And meanwhile, Houston builds all this new housing, but it's ever further apart. And people have these phenomenal commutes. And they, yeah, as I said, they practically live in their cars and they're not any better off for it. But it's where they're kind of forced to go by the economic system that we've created. And we've done this by law. You know, it's not just a free market thing. This is the result of kind of government decisions. And one of the government decisions is driven by the economics of car production. This is true in the United Kingdom. It's true in mainland Europe. It's obviously true in the United States, where I know you've looked at Detroit, for example, as a case study. But the city where you grew up and where I still live, Birmingham, had a massive car factory 
at Longbridge, known as the Austin, and later the Rover car plant. We still have in the West Midlands Jaguar Land Rover, and the government has ensured the the continued existence of Jaguar Land Rover by subsidising a a gigafactory to ensure that electric car batteries can be built and are accessible in the West Midlands. So it isn't just about giving freedom, in inverted commas, to motorists, is it? It's about creating jobs. And you're not seen as a grown-up economy unless you're making loads and loads of cars. There is this intense kind of political love of the car industry, which I sort of struggle to explain on some levels. You know, it does generally, the jobs at car factories are relatively good jobs and they are available, you know, often to working class people who perhaps left school without getting a degree and they can get a, you know, a strong kind of unionized job. Lots of jobs for engineers. They're often in cities that have kind of struggled otherwise. So I guess that that's why. But, you know, the oil industry also generates a lot of really high paying jobs. And I think we have in pursuit of that that kind of supporting those jobs, supporting the car industry, we've kind of let ourselves be blinded to some of the, the problems that having so many cars creates. You know, I'm not against all cars. I don't want to ban them. Even a militant like me thinks that they can still be useful, but we have so many of them. And when we, you know, we we rebuilt the entire world around people having to have cars, and that's completely backwards. You know, we should be in favor of car industry jobs insofar as kind of people need cars. But what we've actually done to try and, you know, in part to help the car industry is pass all these laws that that essentially kind of protect them from the consequences of the damage that they do, you know, whether that is the fact that we essentially provide the roads and the road space and the parking spaces that cars require for free, you know, at taxpayer expense. That's one of the very biggest ways. But there are also things like we allow car manufacturers to sell vehicles that, you know, get up to 140, 150 miles an hour, you know, when the speed limits are 70 which leads to a lot of unnecessary pollution and crash death. So we kind of cost at them. We, we need to be a bit more sceptical of the car industry, you know, and not see the downsides as well as the upsides. When you describe the sprawl that is created by a society built around cars, of course, it's very easy to forget that perhaps in the 1940s and 50s, when many of the US cities that you're talking about were growing and places like Birmingham and Coventry in the West Midlands, were growing, we did have factories usually based in inner cities that belched out pollution. So part of the argument for encouraging people to move away from the inner city into the suburbs was that it would be cleaner, fresher air. Now, of course, there's an irony because if you've got a a car-based economy, you are creating pollution as a result of those cars. But it, it wasn't just about the car, was it? There was a thinking behind it that people could move to greener areas where their health would be better. Oh, yes, completely. It goes, you know, I go through this in the book. There's this history of planning, of urban planning that kind of went hand in hand with the rise of the automobile. People like... Ebenezer Howard, you know, who's this this kind of late Victorian thinker who argued that, you know, that, that cities were incredibly sort of polluted and and appalling, and and wanted to kind of build these what he called garden cities, these kind of spread out suburbs, and you know he actually 
did build one, Letchworth, um, which is just north of London. But there was this quite kind of anti-urban moment that really peaked, I think, in the 1950s. And was this idea of, yeah, you know, we need to get people away from the factories, away from the smog, out into the countryside. But there were people who were criticizing it, even at the time. If you go and read um, George Orwell, you look at uh, The Road to Wigan Pier, you know, he, he wrote about kind of the slum clearances that were happening in places like Liverpool and Manchester in the 1930s. And how, you know, while they were moving people out of often very unsanitary housing into kind of new, what were then very modern council houses, which were a lot cleaner and better, you know, people had these like four or five mile journeys to work, whereas they used to be able to walk to work. And so they're having to wait for buses and pay for buses. And of course, they then got cars. And Orwell wrote that this was unfortunate that people couldn't be persuaded to sort of live in in flats. But it was really the kind of the top end had this sort of idea that, you know, particularly, I think, in English speaking countries, that what everybody needs to aspire to is their own sort of individual house or the garden. And as we've, we've gone, that we've spread out so extraordinarily far that people have these enormous commutes. Some of those council estates that were built, you know, in the 40s and 50s are often very isolating places that are very far from the jobs still today. One thing that I, I took from the book was your description of racialized road building. I thought that was a, a really fascinating area. In the southern United States, the Jim Crow laws after slavery was abolished made it a pretty unappealing place to live. So many black people who used to work on the plantations headed to the cities of the north. But the phenomenon of white flight was engineered through roads and ensured segregation in terms of where people lived, even in supposedly more liberal areas of the states. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons why American cities now are so car centric, why you have these places that are impossible to get around any other way, where sometimes you literally can't walk. It's to do with that combination of the kind of rise of car ownership and racism. Cities here, I mean, I live near one of them, literally just jammed motorways through kind of neighborhoods where people lived and they used them as barriers. They used motorways to create artificial sorts of barriers, you know, like practically like rivers that people struggled to cross so that people couldn't cross from predominantly black areas into white areas. The result of this, yeah, was that, that white people then left cities and moved out to these very car-centric suburbs, which black people often, even after the Civil Rights Act passed, they often couldn't move there because they couldn't afford to move there. And cities themselves were sort of hollowed out and suffered all of these social problems that come from, you know, when you lose so much population, you have derelict buildings, you don't have enough jobs, you have high unemployment, you know, so much of kind of America's urban problems come from this decision, you know, and it was a consciously made decision, although I don't think people quite recognized what would be the result, but this consciously made decision to prioritize the individual car and to put roads through cities in a way that enabled white flights and combined with the racism of the time to kind of ensure that segregation carried on, even as you had this enormous migration of African-Americans from rural South up to cities in the North. So America got it worse. If you look at American cities a hundred years ago, they, you know, they weren't that much unlike European cities. They had generally were densely populated. They had 
good public transport. They were places you could walk around, you could get around without having to have a car. And they they were sacked, they were ruined. And then racism was, I think, a lot of the reason why it was so much worse, that process in, in the US than it was in Europe. What strikes me about the book is your very restrained but clear polemical anger at the domination of the car. What drives that anger? Well, I think it's partly personal. Um, I, you know, I have never been much of a driver. I can drive, and I, I drive for work sometimes. But I've, I've, um, I don't own a car, and uh, you know, I was quite a reluctant, like learner to drive. I learned for work reasons, and you know, I get around by bicycle. And uh, I think one of the um, fortunate things about if you get around by bicycle is that it kind of radicalizes you um, in a way that that I almost had to restrain when I was writing the book, you know, because you constantly feel like somebody's going to try and run you over and you get into arguments with people who think that, you know, that you're not even entitled to be on the road. You know, it goes back before that, even though I think when I was a teenager, having Getting around Birmingham by bus was such a frustrating experience. I can promise you that very little has changed in that regard. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. And I've been able to live uh, a life for the most part without needing a car, but I've only been able to do it by by choosing to live in some really quite specific neighborhoods, you know, parts of inner London, parts of DC. And now the neighborhood I live in Chicago, as you can hear from the train coming past occasionally, it has pretty good public transport and is quite walkable because it's an old neighborhood. It was built mostly in the Victorian period. But most people don't have that choice. Unless you can get a job in one of relatively few big cities and you can kind of afford to live in a neighborhood that's walkable and has good public transport you're sort of forced to live somewhere where you have to have a car so it's not a kind of hatred of cars per se i think if people want to have cars and they want to spend their money on cars good for them but car drivers are kind of subsidized to this enormous degree and every other form of getting around every other form of living is consequently sort of made harder and more expensive, even though it's better for the environment. It's better, I think, socially. I personally think it, it's better for your mental health, for example, to be able to walk. It's better for your, your physical health to, you know, to live somewhere that you, you don't just get in your car every time you need to go somewhere. So it makes me angry that people don't have that choice. I don't blame individual car drivers for the most part, although I have a bit of a think about BMW drivers that I'm, I'm, I'm more suspicious of. But in general, people buy cars because they're forced to by the kind of laws and the infrastructure that we've built out. And the anger, I think, comes from the fact that it's so difficult to make any other choices. But what would you describe as the key downsides of this explosion in car ownership? We've talked about the social issues. Is it about pollution? Is it about climate change? I think it's about all of these things. I mean, climate change, I think, is one of the reasons why it's become very urgent and why I hope this is a good time to be to be writing this book, to be selling this book, is that car emissions, the transport emissions are the the really the fastest rising source of CO2 emissions. Um, you know, we're managing quite effectively to kind of electrify our grids to reduce the amount of energy that industry uses, that we use in our, our homes, that sort of thing. But the amount of kind of fuel that we're burning driving around keeps going up. And that's still the case even now with the kind of electric cars. So so I think we sort of need to turn the corner there. And I worry also that a lot of big changes coming in. We're trying to change our cars to be electrified and that sort of thing. And I, I think now there's a risk that we end up even with even more cars on the road. And the con- 
congestion, the difficulty of getting around any other way, the costs to our like local city economies that congestion imposes, the costs of, of people dying in car crashes. You know, it's like 2,000 people a year in the UK. It's 43,000 people last year in the United States. It's over a million people worldwide being killed in car crashes. These kind of costs that we've, we've sort of got used to and accepted, but we really ought to be trying to reduce at the moment. And at a time when we're all changing our cars, I think we should be trying to think about how we can get by with with fewer cars, how we can rebuild a little bit so that we don't need to drive as much as we all do. I was intrigued by what you said, that people are forced to have cars. Now, at the recent Uxbridge by-election, the Conservatives beat off Labour much to the surprise of most commentators, because of this row over the ultra-low emission zone, which the London Mayor Sadiq Khan wants to expand to outer London. In the part of South Birmingham, where I live, there has been huge disagreement over the introduction of LTNs, low-traffic neighbourhoods. And people who are opposed to these kind of measures do mobilise around the flag of freedom. You're stopping me enjoying the freedom to get into my car and go where I like. It feeds into conspiracy theories that we've discussed on the podcast before, suggestions that the World Economic Forum is somehow behind this and that these are the routes towards some kind of global government that would keep people penned into their local areas. And I almost get where they're coming from. I mean, I, I was surprised too, I think, by the strength of the reaction in Uxbridge in that by-election, because it, it is only, you know, one in 10 cars, I think, that are affected by the ULEs there. But I think there is this fear that's quite widespread that people like me are coming for your cars. And I think if you do live somewhere, you know, like Uxbridge, like outer London, or, you know, parts of Birmingham, particularly maybe some of the outer parts of Birmingham, but, you know, Birmingham is a very car-centric city, so people have these views even relatively central, that if you've got used to using your car for everything. You've owned a car, you're literally financially invested in a car, and your neighborhood is built in such a way that it's difficult to get around without a car. The buses are unreliable, everything's quite far apart. Then kind of reducing your ability to drive does feel like an imposition on freedom. And the argument that I've been trying to make, that I hope the book makes, but I'm trying to make more generally, is that cities don't have to look like they currently look. And if you do reduce the cars, you know, you do reduce people's freedom to drive, you create freedom for other people who can get around more easily by bicycle or on foot or by public transport. You know, the the buses is a classic example. One of the reasons why the buses in places like Birmingham are so unreliable is that they spend a lot of their time stuck in traffic. If you reduce the cars, almost automatically the buses begin to move faster and become more efficient. So I think the it, you know the reaction of of kind of car owners of my freedoms being taken away it's not completely irrational but other people's freedom is being expanded by these same sorts of measures and if we can kind of think of it that way you know LTNs create freedom for children to play on streets without worrying about being run over 
that sort of thing. So I think we do have to see this as competing rights sometimes. And the default position for so long has been that car drivers come first above everybody else. And there's this huge kind of violent reaction to the fact to any any hint of changing that. I don't think that means we shouldn't change it. But we have to make the case, you know, for the positive impact, the positive freeing of this too. But yeah, there will be people who are upset. And I what I hope at least with the Uxbridge thing is that, you know, once the ULES is actually imposed and most people begin to realize, you know, that their cars comply and that they can still drive just as much as they did before, some of that anger will dissipate. I think there's a lot of kind of fear that uh well, frankly, that people like me are going to get our way, but I'm not, you know, I think it, it it's moving slowly. It's not moving fast. <laughs> so yeah. And you argue not for a a zero car future, not for an entirely car free future, but one where the rights and interests of the car industry and car owners are weighed much less heavily than against the rights of pedestrians, the rights of cyclists. Of course, many people will be both of those things or some of those things you can be a cyclist and a motorist at the same time but the balance has to shift and this isn't just magical thinking you reference for example one of the great cities of the world which doesn't appear to be run by the world economic forum so far as i know a city where nobody suggests that you are not free and that city is tokyo which presents a vision of a, a major urban area where the car does not dominate to anything like the degree that it does in Western cities and where it's harder and more expensive to own a car, but not impossible. Yeah. And so the reason I wrote about Tokyo is exactly that. You know, Japan has a huge car industry and a lot of people do own cars, but there are two big laws that make a difference. The First one is that there's no on-street parking. So if you want to park your car, you have to pay for parking. And, uh, you know, in a business, if it wants to have parking spaces, has to kind of provide them itself. And so a lot don't, particularly in bigger cities, especially in Tokyo. If you want to own a car, you have to show that you have your own parking space, you know, that you have a garage or that you have a, an off-street parking space for yourself before you're even allowed to buy the car. And the other thing is that all of their motorways have a toll roads. That's how they're paid for. So they don't ban cars. They don't say you can't have a car. You know, they, they, they have a great car industry, but they tax and charge, you know, people the land space they're using for the for the cost of having a car. They're not giving away kind of roads and parking spaces and land for free to car owners. And the result is that even though actually Japanese people have you know relatively high car ownership, it's a little bit lower than the UK, but not that much lower. They drive a lot less. And Japanese people will use their cars when it's necessary. They'll, if they're going out into the countryside or they're transporting some very heavy stuff, you know, or they've got... I don't know, a whole crowd of children in the back, you know, they'll still use a the car then, but they don't tend to use them to get to work. They don't tend to use them for all these sort of short journeys. And over half of kind of car trips in the UK are less than five miles. And people are often driving to the shops to pick up a pint of milk or, you know, they're driving down to get a haircut. They're driving for these things that you really shouldn't have to drive for. So I'm not saying ban the car, I think, but I, I think, the, yeah, Tokyo is an indicator of you know, actually these quite small changes that that charge people the actual cost of, of owning a car, the cost of society of owning a car. 
and they were they might still own cars or they might still use their cars but use them a lot less and that's really what i'm saying is that we we could all be better off if we used our cars just a bit less you know or maybe quite a lot less really but we don't need to use them for every single journey but unfortunately what our kind of incentives are set up makes it that that's the natural thing to do. Owning a car is very expensive up front. You know, the insurance is expensive, but you pay all those things no matter how much you drive. And every additional journey doesn't cost you very much. So people sort of, you know, feel like, well, I've got the car, I might as well go everywhere in it. And that's hugely costly to society. Daniel, really good to speak to you. Thank you for your time. Daniel Knowles' book, Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It, is out now, and it's well worth reading. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. We'll see you again soon. This was a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times. Cheers now. Bye-bye.